0: Welcome to Uncommons, I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode we're focused on the fiscal response to the pandemic, whether we can afford it, or whether we ought to be worried about the significant scale of deficit spending. Minister Freeland recently laid out the broad economic rationale driving our fiscal response in a speech to the Toronto Global Forum, and greater detail will of course be found in the fall economic statement. I'm joined by Brett House, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Brett's resume is exhausting with past roles in any number of different places, including as Principal Advisor in the Office of the UN Secretary General and as an economist with the International Monetary Fund. He joins me to help answer some common questions we tend to receive. While we are doing our best to support individuals and businesses through the economic fallout precipitated by the pandemic, can we afford the scale of spending? Is the growing debt fair to future generations? Is the federal approach the right one overall? And if we shouldn't be concerned about the size of deficit spending now, when should we become concerned about it, if ever? Brett, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Chrystia Freeland recently gave a speech to the Toronto Global Forum where she references macroeconomics. And she says the wisest macroeconomic approach to this global pandemic is to help Canadian businesses and Canadian families get through to the other side without going broke. We want to give our businesses and our households a bridge so that as many of them as possible make it through viable and intact. And really, overall, she's making the case that now is not the time for spending restraint. We need to deliver a hard and fast fiscal response. And we're going to see, obviously, an economic update shortly, and it will be a very large number. But she was defending that very large number. Would you disagree or would you support that analysis as As an expert in that field?
1: Well, what I thought was useful about that speech was that it set some broad rationale for what the government has done in response to the pandemic and the control measures that were put into place to shut down interaction between people and stop contagion and as a byproduct shut down a lot of our economy. And the most important underlying rationale is that this crisis is distinctly different from 2008, you know, when we had bubbles in parts of the US and European economies. We had unsustainable debt burdens in some parts of Europe. It's distinct from the early 2000s dot-com bubble when we had a clear run-up in valuations in parts of the stock market that was not entirely justified. It's different from the policy mistakes of the late 90s in a variety of emerging markets, where fixed exchange rates became unsustainable and inconsistent with the economies behind them. The households and businesses that have been suffering this year as a result of contagion control measures didn't have out of whack valuations. They hadn't benefited from some huge and unsustainable inflow of capital. They weren't unsustainable business models or models of businesses in decline. Similarly, households You know, we're not in financial situations that were over their heads or got themselves into trouble because of bad or wanton choices. So the whole rationale of bridging households and businesses through this crisis is that if you think that they were viable financial entities before the crisis, then to let them fall apart now simply because of a random pandemic would be an action that would permanently impair our economy, take years and years for us to dig out of and put us on a permanently lower growth path potentially for decades and that would be far more costly than the bridge financing that we're providing to households small businesses and in some cases big corporations
0: and that's the point that i have tried to communicate in some ways as constituents ask me how do we afford this and i've seen some conservative commentators suggest that the price tag is growing too big but That question of how can we afford the spending, well, in some respects, the answer back is we can't afford not to spend. And the Scotiabank analysis that that I read out of June, and I don't know if it's worth updating in the course of this conversation, but the estimate for GDP decline had the federal government not stepped in would have been incredibly significant.
1: That's right. We estimated that if we had not seen the federal fiscal support that has been put into place So far, we would have seen the contraction in the Canadian economy be about 3% of GDP deeper than it has been. And we would see the resulting recovery as we reopen take at least a year to two years longer than would otherwise have been the case. Now, since then, the rebound has actually proceeded a little faster than most forecasters anticipated. In part, that's because our understanding of the virus has evolved as well, and the way that it's spread has moved from a universal fear that it's aerosol, it's contact, it's almost any way that you can be in the presence of other human beings. We know now that it's a much more aerosol-based transmission, and so some parts of the economy that were able to be reopened with, with that understanding are unlikely to close down again. So some of the rebound has been moved forward, but we're still looking, even with that support in place, at at least another 18 months until we get back to the level of economic activity even with uh, substantial support and the vaccines potentially coming next year, we're looking at 18 months to get back to the same level of economic activity that we had at the end of 2019. And that still leaves us 3 or 4% down from where the trajectory of what our growth path was on if the pandemic hadn't happened. So you can see those 2 or 3% really matter in terms of timing. They matter in terms of well-being. And they also matter in terms of what economists in kind of fancy ways refer to as nonlinear effects. That is that there are breaking points that when you allow economic activity to contract, you don't go on a straight line down that there are some stepwise moves where let a certain proportion of the economy fail, then there are big knock-on effects. And we saw that in the Great Depression in the 1930s. And a lot of the financing and support measures that we've put in place now are designed specifically to learn from those lessons and avoid them. And we put them in in a big way up front because as Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin has said, one of the lessons from 2008 is that you respond to a crisis by crushing it with overwhelming force right at the outset in part to build confidence, but in part also to prevent damage. And one of the other lessons from 2008 is that you keep it in place because in the wake of 2008, some of those calls for fiscal austerity, for getting back on the path we were on previously, almost certainly meant that the very slow recovery from that financial crisis that took really much of the last decade was longer than it needed to be. Now, I'm going on a little bit. There's one thing I do want to really underscore, because I'm a touch older than you are, is that almost anyone over 40 in Canada is in some ways almost culturally or emotionally scarred from the austerity process of the 1990s when we did have a very high debt to GDP ratio and the costs of servicing it were beginning to spiral out of control and would take up ever greater proportions of our public budget. Canada went through a pretty wrenching process in the first two Kretchen governments of pulling back on spending and increase taxation to get our debt and deficits under control. And having gone through that, I can fully understand why people are wary of tiptoeing or jumping back into a situation where that kind of pain might be necessary again. But it is truly the case that if we were to not spend as we are now, the pain over the next few years would be far greater and potentially even as acute. You know, you ask, what is the level of affordability? Well, The question right now is more what level of spending do we need to keep businesses and households afloat to the point where we have a vaccine in place? And then the point where we have to begin ratcheting back on spending isn't some specific number so much as, one, either a criterion that says we don't need that spending anymore, or two, where we're starting to see inflation and economic activity pick up in a way that starts offsetting the benefits of that spending. I would say those are the general criteria I've got in mind.
0: So there's a lot there and I've got a lot of questions out of what you just said. As a starting point though, of the difference between where we are at today, versus the 90s. One big difference, obviously, is servicing that debt. In the Scotiabank analysis from June, today's fiscal spending is contributing to substantially better economic outcomes. That's good. While raising net debt levels only marginally. And yet, when you hear conservatives banging about about a $1 trillion debt, and it's likely to be even larger in the fall economic statement, how are Canadians who are not macroeconomists, how are they to make sense of that statement that net debt levels are only increasing marginally?
1: Well, you can look at what's happening to Canada versus our peers, the other big advanced industrialized countries in the world. We started out with a debt to GDP ratio. And so that's a fancy way of saying, how much income do we have? That's GDP every year that could possibly be employed to pay off all of our debt if we needed it. And when we went into this crisis, our debt was about 30% of our total economic activity or income in Canada every year. And so, you know, we're never asked to pay down our debt all in one go like that. It's the equivalent of saying we're going to break up the furniture, sell off the house, give up everything that we have, essentially. That is never really the criterion for affordability. But at 30% of annual income, we had one of the lowest debt to GDP ratios in the industrialized world, even after what is some of the biggest spending as a share of national income in the industrialized world, we will still have against the rest of the G7 and against most of the club of rich industrialized countries, one of the lowest debt ratios on par with Germany, which is always kind of lauded for its fiscal probity. We will still remain, you know, at the bottom or you know, in the best rungs of the debt to GDP burdens across industrialized countries. At the same time, because interest rates have gone down so much, the share of our GDP that we're paying to service that debt, to pay interest on it every year, has gone down from around 6% in the 90s to less than a percentage point. So in fact, even though our debt burden is up as a share of our national income, the cost of maintaining it every year is lower. So there's no way in which we're facing an immediate fiscal or debt crisis. But I think there is one concern that is important and worth acknowledging, and that is that we need to be very thoughtful about how we spend that money. In the first instance, it has to be about keeping households and businesses afloat. And then the second consideration we need to think about, is it increasing the efficiency and effectiveness of our economy so that growth rates over time? can be raised up because in order to keep our debt sustainable, the rate of growth of the economy has to be higher than the rate of interest that we're paying on that debt. And if we can create a virtuous circle where we're keeping households and businesses alive and at the same time increasing the growth potential of our economy, that's a real win-win combination.
0: Now, Minister Freeland said in that speech that I referenced, she said, I will have further thoughts to share soon about the fiscal rules and limits by which we will govern ourselves. Presumably, we'll see some of of that in the fall economic statement. But what you've just outlined has the beginnings of a fiscal anchor. And I asked Joe Stiglitz about what should the fiscal anchor be? And previously, we've talked about debt to GDP as a fiscal anchor here in Canada. The Conservatives have talked about balanced budgets as as a potential way of conceiving of a fiscal anchor. You are outlining instead a way of measuring the return on what we are spending. And if you look at your debt servicing costs and you look at the return that you're receiving from the outlay, and Stiglitz said to me, that is how he would conceive of a fiscal anchor is what is the return you're getting on uh, the investment you're making, given especially with low interest rates in mind. Do you have the same view of, of that is how we should conceive of our fiscal anchor?
1: Well, it's difficult to disagree with Nobel Prize winner like Joe Stiglitz. And I would just add the caveat that in theory, that's exactly the right fiscal anchor for a moment like this. The first rule is, are we sustaining businesses and households through the crisis? The second rule is, is the rate of return on our spending higher than the interest that we're paying on it? And the interest rate's very low right now. So that's a a really easy hurdle to get over. But that interest rate isn't always going to be low. So we need to build some cushion into that consideration. Where we move from theory to practice is it's hard to estimate what the return on investment is going to be. What is the broad efficiency increase that we're going to see? It's also hard to pin down what will the returns to government be in terms of tax revenue as a result of that extra productivity and growth. Some of those returns are going to go to private sector actors, households and businesses. Taxes on those will be a proportion of those returns And so you've got at least three steps that you have to project or forecast in advance and get more or less in the ballpark right to make a really serious consideration about how much and how you allocate that spending. I think I would add as next considerations would be greater equity so that everyone in society is participating in the gains from that growth after sustaining households then increasing growth and potential and increasing equity, it's making our economy greener too, that ought to be a consideration.
0: And we are in a moment where, and I expect to see in the fall economic statement, an overall consideration of this is we are weathering the storm. We are supporting individuals and businesses. We have our wage subsidy now in place for a long time. The emergency rent subsidy is now going to be in place for an extended period of time. The income supports for individuals who, who have lost employment income are going to be in place now in, for a, a considerable amount of time for at a minimum of six months and probably revisited if this situation continues as it's likely to, I think, beyond uh, even next summer. And in addition to that, there are investments in public health measures and vaccine efforts and the logistics that surround that. And then outside of weathering the storm, when you look to the recovery effort, as it were, we've heard folks talk about a green recovery. I mentioned Stiglitz and he certainly was focused on a green recovery. You've just mentioned green as well, tackling inequality, income and wealth inequality, and, and that equity lens as well. But are there dollars left over, I suppose? You had mentioned don't be too quick to pull back. And and I take that point. So though that weathering the storm support has to be there for an extended period of time such that we don't spend a great deal of money only to pull it back too soon and then bear all the losses that we would have borne anyway. But at some point, do we run up against a limit where the PBO says, well, you know, you can't have extended significant spending, we're running up against some sustainability limit? Or would you say on green measures and on certain recovery measures, we should be very bold and continue to run significant
1: deficits? Well, I do think, as I mentioned, the first priority is getting through this crisis. And when I hear phrases like in the US and here about building back better, let's just build back first and make sure that we've got that recovery fully locked in. And I'm saying, and then add on those additional considerations around increasing equity, improving the environmental sustainability of our infrastructure and the way that our society works. But I do see a triaging that we are in such a deep crisis and potentially one that extends over the next year or two that you know we wanna make sure that we prioritize simply keeping the lights on in small businesses, in households, ensuring you know that they're not cho- choosing between medication or food or rent because of things that are absolutely no fault of their own. And so that really remains my first priority. I'd love to be able to do everything at once and getting a little tired, I guess, of the old saw about never waste a good crisis. That would be great if we were capable of doing all those things at once. And I don't want to seem like a pessimist. I'm just Mindful that all of this stuff is hard, so let's make sure we get through the crisis and then sequence some of the additional things we want to layer on how we spend.
0: I think that's probably right, except where there is some complementarity to the responses. So when I think of retrofits, for an example, where that could both put people to work, which is important, you could imagine it could be accomplished in a fairly safe way. What we know of the spread of COVID, and it would be important for our climate objectives as well. I, I don't pretend that there are so very many of these policies that have these overlapping considerations, but there are some at least that that we might want to say, certainly get through the crisis, but then soon thereafter or at the tail end, we're going to be focused on these policies, which, which match our green objectives with employ, employment objectives. And then as we are outside of the crisis and we're then building back better, not just building back, then there is an even greater focus on some of these other objectives.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are some overlaps and complementarities, and these aren't necessarily either or propositions, but they're also tough to ferret out some of those complementarities too that exist again, in theory, but are harder to put into place in practice, for instance, on things like retrofits or other aspects of greener infrastructure. I think they're terrific ideas. They're difficult, though, as uh, responses to the current employment crisis, because most of the people who are out of work right now are from the service sectors, from hospitality, entertainment, culture, tourism. They're generally not people with infrastructure-related skills. Of course, they can be retrained and repurposed to the extent that they want to be, but that isn't an immediate fix. And you know, we already know that the notion of shovel-ready infrastructure, in my view, is a little bit of an empty one. It's very hard to find things that are immediately ready with multiple levels of government, environmental considerations and other priorities to put a shovel in the ground instantly. Again, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to find those things, but we should be mindful that when we need to provide a quick response right now, some of those things take a bit longer.
0: Now, when we look at different vantage points on the macro side, we have the Christia Freeland view, and she is quoting in the course of her speech, a number of other economists and quoting the IMF and Financial Times and saying, this is where there is a great deal of consensus and other finance ministers are in agreement. On the other side, you have the conservative finance critic saying too much, and this is all going to become due at some point, and it's going to mean increased taxes and with concerns on that end. And then on on the other end, you have you know Stephanie Kelton is maybe the most popular individual with respect to modern monetary theory, but there but there are others too. And in the Canadian context, I've seen more conversation around MMT that now than I ever have before. You've made an articulate case for why now is not the time for restraint. Is Christia wrong to say, but now is also not the time for Canada to flirt with MMT and there are no free lunches?
1: Well, I think the most important thing is that this isn't just a time to eschew restraint. It's also a time to avoid chivalrous and ideologies. You know, we're in a time that's unprecedented truly in some ways, at least in terms of economic thinking. We're in parts of the models that we normally work with that we see as the exceptions, you know, the kind of far corners of the gamma quadrants that we're sailing through as economists. And so in those places. We don't know necessarily either where we are right now in terms of important parts of how the damage to the economy looks and how the recovery will be shaped. And additionally, you know, it's not entirely clear where we'll be going. And so I think you know, an eclectic, data-driven, and an open-minded approach is necessary. And you know, that means picking off you know some parts of both Kelton's view that you know, deficits don't matter at all and some of the caution from the conservative side that says deficits matter a whole lot. I would agree that right now, deficits don't matter a whole bunch You know because the imperative is sustaining the economy. And one place where I would disagree with uh, Deputy Prime Minister's speech, she, she made the point that monetary policy is out of bullets. Effectively, monetary policy is never entirely out of bullets. It might you know use up a variety of bullets, but it can always double, triple, quadruple down on the ones that it's firing. And right now we are seeing central banks around the world buying debt in an unprecedented way and monetizing the debt of their governments. Central banks can keep doing that indefinitely. So there is no way they run out of bullets. And so to that extent, Professor Kelton is correct deficits don't matter in this moment when we have a glut of savings, as Larry Summers has pointed out, when there is too much capital and too few opportunities to invest in. Government spending has a critical role to sustain demand in that environment. And, you know, the normal concern about governments running deficits is that they're going after and sucking up scarce capital in the economy. And that pushes up interest rates and chokes off investment. Well, Interest rates are as low as they've ever been. Inflation, which is the thing that pushes up those interest rates, is falling in uh, many developed economies. So we don't have price pressures of too much capital or money chasing too few goods and services. But we will at some stage. And that's the point where Professor Kelton's view, in my opinion, and I think borne out by the vast preponderance of traditional economic models, that's where her view that deficits don't matter starts to ebb and deficits start to matter a whole lot when you start seeing inflation go up, when you start seeing central banks having to cut back on buying that debt and push interest rates up, and conceivably then they start choking off private sector investment, which is what we want to see to create more capacity, more jobs, more income, and the virtuous circle of economic activity that we always talk about. So the issue I would really underscore is that the whole idea of modern monetary theory, is in some ways, I think, an overblown marketing device. It's not modern. The notion that you can be in a situation where you expand fiscal policy and borrowing without pushing up interest rates and inflation for an extended period of time is deeply embedded in neoclassical and Keynesian models. It's known as the liquidity trap. And it's not a monetary theory when what you're really talking about is deficits, fiscal deficits and fiscal spending. And it's not distinct theory. It's a special case of existing models. And in my view, and this is a bit of a rant, I think MMTers are mistaking what is a specific case of existing models for a general description of the world. Yes, there are particular circumstances, weird ones, like the one we're in now, where MMT makes sense. But within a year or two, we're going to pass out of that phase. And that's when the conservative concern about government spending and deficits becomes opposite again. And it's why focusing not just on getting uh, households and businesses through the crisis, but doing so in a way that increases their productive potential is critical to address that conservative concern, which will become relevant in a few years. Increasing growth rates is gonna be the key thing to make those debts and deficits sustainable.
0: It's interesting. I mean, no doubt, MMT has become more popular because we are living through a crisis in which that response makes the most sense. I have yet to read Professor Kelton's book, but in reading, going down the rabbit hole a little bit in in terms of reading uh, about MMT, I was struck: the fiscal anchor, as it were, is inflation. And I'm not an economist, but in my world of politics, that always struck me as a bit of a difficult fiscal anchor because how do I know when inflation is running away. Once I know, how do I quickly get it under control, knowing what I know about the political processes here in Canada and how slowly we function at times? And it seems like it makes sense in a way, but I don't know how to operationalize that fiscal anchor in a particularly useful way as as a decision maker.
1: You know, I think the broad limit that you can take away from MMT is that the point where we start seeing inflation durably moving upward is the point where we have to probably cut back on spending because we are seeing government compete with the private sector for capital. But that that's a kind of one off decision point rather than a general rule for how you anchor fiscal spending and control inflation in an economy. Over a longer period, using a very blunt instrument like fiscal policy to try to fine-tune price movements is very vague, a very lagged, and a very imprecise way of trying to keep price inflation under control. And I think once you pass that decision point, the baton ought to be passed then to monetary policy to control how much inflation starts edging up. And fiscal spending needs to be brought back at that point.
0: And it, it, I got a question from youth council members of all things the other day, given the scale of spending and, and given the just the, the sheer mind-boggling numbers in some ways, they say, are we going to pay for it? Are our taxes going to go up down the road that we will ultimately as young Canadians be paying for this crisis? What, what would you say to my youth council?
1: Well, you know, I would agree with some who've said it's It's not fair to burden future generations with debt. It's even less just to burden them with a permanently impaired economy where significant parts of our productive infrastructure have been knocked out and shuttered. That's a worse thing to hand to them. So, you know, in some ways we're looking at a hierarchy of not great things and this is the least bad thing that we can hand on. And that's where, you know, my second part of my hierarchy of criteria for spending on increasing economic growth and productivity and potential becomes really critical. Because if we want to ensure that future generations can pay this debt burden down, we need to make sure the spending we're doing now is not just sustaining, but also improving households' ability to produce and to grow, and businesses for that matter.
0: Minister Freeland was very clear that these emergency supports are temporary. And in the course of this conversation, you have reference the need to deliver big in the course of respond to the crisis and respond to the shock. But when the shock is over, then pull back that that spending. And yet there are some programs in the course of this crisis that I have looked at and thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had income supports that left nobody behind, not only in a great economic shock that has ensured that mass numbers of Canadians are unemployed, but where there are personal shocks in people's lives and they are then unemployed and they are unable to access EI and they don't have the income supports that they need. When we look at a conversation about basic income, I was just on a panel earlier today with Jenica Atwin and Leah Gazan, it's not cheap, at least up front. There are obviously real costs to poverty and we could talk about medium to long term savings in healthcare, criminal justice and and just enhanced economic opportunity for those individuals who are growing up out of poverty. But in the short term, there is a cost. And that cost will feel significant, I think, for other politicians when they're when they're looking at the scale of spending, maybe less significant after the scale of spending in this crisis. But it does seem to me that, yes, we should end the emergency rent subsidy. Yes, we should end the wage subsidy. But I am drawn to this idea of keeping income supports in a more serious way. Is that something do you think we could afford?
1: Well, you know, I think there's a growing chorus of economists and policymakers who are supportive of the idea of both guaranteed annual and universal basic incomes. And I think, you know, there are a variety of arguments in support of them. And I think what's important to emphasize is it's not just the case that the current crisis provides a kind of window to start looking at them as ways in which we restructure benefits and support for the most vulnerable in society as we move out of this time based on the fact that the cerb is effectively an experiment in a basic income but there are also long standing forces that augur for something like a minimum support level for people in a country like Canada where citizenship should mean more than rights it should mean you know access to a basic level of economic well-being too you know, over the last 50, 60 years, the economic consensus, which is not complete, but it's very widespread behind freer trade, freer capital markets, has always quietly acknowledged that while that freedom would create greater growth, greater prosperity, and greater efficiency, those benefits may not be shared equitably or equally by everyone in society. In fact, you know, One of the basic tenets of most neoclassical trade theories is that as you know, we exploit comparative advantage, focus in on the things that we do relatively well, there will be some industries and workers who will do better and some that will probably be made worse off in the very short term. And one of the compensations for that has always been an argument that some of the benefits that go to the winners should be redistributed. Effectively to the losers, very much in inverted commas, of freer markets and freer trade, to ensure that they can retrain, that they can move, uh, that they can start businesses themselves, or if all those things are impossible, because you know if you're older, you know you're possibly. In a situation where you're not able to retrain, there needs to be something to support you. And so when we look at the fact that Canada has moved to a much freer trade posture with the rest of the world, much more openness to capital after closing down a bit in some parts of the 20th century, something like a universal basic income to handle some of those transfers to support people who are not immediately being made better off by that greater liberalization has always been something That we've said we would do, but we haven't done it in a comprehensive way. And now provides an opportunity to really explore that more deeply. And
0: when we look at that question of equity from a spending side, I'm drawn to a basic income and ensuring that we're lifting people up below a minimum floor and leaving nobody behind. On the revenue side, we've recently had a motion in the House. It was convoluted and it tried to add a bunch of spending measures to it. But if we just looked at the revenue side, they were asking for a wealth tax of 1% on assets over $20 million. I've read other reports that suggest an inheritance tax would be a better way to on an implementation side to achieve some of the same goals that a wealth tax is, is hard to implement potentially. Do you see room on the on the revenue side to look at new taxation measures as well?
1: Well, a few months ago, I was on TVO's The Agenda with Steve Pakin, having a debate about wealth taxes. And while I think they've got a lot of superficial attraction to them, the track record of them has been terrible, and they've got you know some deep principled flaws in them too. So, both you know developing and emerging and advanced economies have tried wealth taxes at different times over the last few decades. Almost all of them have removed them, not because you know as some say you know the wealthy in society have sort of captured government and ensured that this policy has been pushed out they remove them for two reasons one they're very difficult to implement they're very easy to skirt and they provide a disincentive to the accumulation of capital within the country and investment and second or thirdly depending on how i'm counting here on a principal point they violate the notion that you don't tax the same income twice And I think that's an important principle to keep in place. And I think in some ways, by trying to focus on a tax measure that provided a nice headline around a vote in the House of Commons, but stood no chance of being supported by the House, and even if it had been, would not have been effective in raising the kind of monies that were mooted in the discussion. I think it essentially lets us as policy interested people and policymakers, off the hook for some much more difficult conversations around what marginal income taxes should look like, what consumption taxes should continue to look like, what some of these transfers should be characterized by, where minimum wages uh, should be set in the economy. Because even before we think about something like a wealth tax, or a universal basic income, the original basic income is the minimum wage. And in most parts of the country, we've only just started seeing some real increases in minimum wages for the first time in 30 years as a result of the changes over the last few years at the provincial level. And at least in Ontario, the minimum wage increases brought in by the end of the Kathleen Wynne government didn't actually have a negative impact on employment, pushed up inflation a little bit, which was a good thing because it's been too low. Headline inflation has been consistently under the Bank of Canada's target. And we saw most of the cost of those minimum wage increases get borne by consumers buying expensive lattes, and they actually resulted in strong transfers of income into minimum wage employees. So I think there are a lot more effective and immediate things we can do to put money in low-income people's pockets and that we can do to ensure that financing the current spending is done in a more effective way. Wealth tax is a, it's a grandstanding move.
0: I saw in the UK, they are having a more fulsome parliamentary examination of tax measures on the way outside of the coronavirus pandemic. And we have not really had that conversation in Canada. You'll have specific measures that are proposed, but we don't have this larger conversation about, yeah, let's look at capital gains. Yes, let's look at consumption taxes. Yes, let's look at dividend income and the way we treat it. We've referenced stock options in the throne speech and then said, and we'll look at other ways of taxing extreme wealth inequality what I would like to see is, you know, in the same way we might've had a Carter commission many years ago, we have a number of smart people come to the table with the clear focus to say, examine tax policies today with the lens of equity and fairness, and to say, how do we deliver a fairer tax system and what changes should we make with all of these measures on the table, closing loopholes, et cetera. And as someone in a, in a policy making position at times, that would be certainly helpful to me. My last question, which is a, not a substantive question for you, You are an expert in economics. You have a position with Scotiabank, but you have an interest in politics. Do you see yourself in my position at some point? Would you be interested in pursuing a political path down the road?
1: Well, you know, the work I do right now is is incredibly interesting. And, you know, one of the great things about being in a bank's economics department in Canada is that You know, we work with the clients of the bank and the management on their strategic decisions. But unlike almost any other country in the world, all of our research is available on open source basis through our website. You know, we comment on issues in the media a whole lot. We're involved in consulting with government. And the most important thing to me is to have an impact and have an impact in a way that makes the world work better for people that creates more opportunities for more parts of society that does ensure not just greater equity but greater possibility as well and at some stage you know whether it's in an elected role or moving back into a public sector role I have worked in policy and academic research and in financial markets and that was intentional to try to extract lessons and insights in all of those areas to bring them together to do important and useful work, whether it's elected or you know in a public servant role. I came back to Canada five years ago to have a positive impact in my home country and that's what I'll keep working toward.
0: Well, Brett, I appreciate your time. And it's interesting when some of the most significant policy issues we are facing in the course of this crisis mean that one turns to a macro economist, which is, is not every day in politics, I have to say, since 2015, that I would have turned to a macro economist to, to tell me about the world. But, but here we are. Thanks, Brad. I really appreciate it.
1: It's great to see you. Thanks again.
0: Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.